Let's bow in a word of prayer as we get started with the word this morning. Father, we are thankful that you have not kept us unaware of what you have done or what you're doing or will do, that, that you've given us clues and, and scriptures, prophets and your Holy Spirit, Lord, that, that, that the revelation of you might be made clear. And so Lord, I pray that you would help me not to get in the way of that this morning. I pray that you'd guide my heart, my lips and my mind to speak only what you've ordained today. Lord, I pray that you would allow us to sit at your feet and to learn uh, and that we would be drawn to you and to your gospel and be motivated then to, to live out our life in gratitude to you and in thanksgiving. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning as we get started in our scriptures, I, I want you to imagine for a second, and I don't, I don't want to cause any problems and get anybody over emotional in here, but I want you to imagine your worst enemy. Um, some of you shouldn't be looking at me like that. You're like, I don't got to imagine. I see you right there. But um, I want you to imagine your worst enemy, the, maybe the person or the persons in your life where it's like that just that gets you. You know, it's a thorn. That person's a thorn. And so you can imagine that person like what they have done, the egregious thing that maybe came against you or maybe the way they neglected you or whatever happened. You've got that person. Maybe you know them intimately. You know their name. Uh, maybe you don't know them. Maybe it was something that's happened far off or you, it went by so fast. You don't even know exactly who it was. But that situation caused you such pain that you still live in a place where that person is an enemy, where there is there is a there's a, a conflict. There's a separation between you and that person. That's what I want you to imagine. I want that person to be in your mind. But now I want you to imagine this. I would like you to imagine yourself showing them overwhelming kindness. This person who's offended you does not deserve it, that you would come and show them kindness, maybe in a way that you've never shown anybody before. In fact, I want you to go over the top. Not only do I want you to imagine showing that person kindness, I want you to imagine that you have gone out and you have uh, with your own money that you maybe you would reserve for something else. I want you to take and I want you to purchase a priceless gift for that person. I want you to take that priceless gift and deliver it to that person with a smile. And, and not only that, uh, for several of you, maybe you look at your driver's license and you have on there that you're an organ donor. And so I want you to imagine that not only have you had overwhelming kindness towards them, not only have you gone out and purchased a priceless gift for them, but also at a time it comes for you to see them in need of an organ giving them life, that, that you would actually deliver your own organ to them, that you would give of your own body in order that this person who is an enemy might live. I want you to imagine that process going forward. And, and, and I know it's difficult sometimes for us because we're like, I don't want to do any of those things. I don't want to be kind. I don't want to buy a gift. I don't want to give any part of my body so that that person can have any joy, any life, any continuing existence because they've hurt me so bad. And yet... We need to consider the fact that that has been the story of God, that it's not imaginary, that the scripture says that you and I, because of our sin and all of humanity has been this ultimate enemy and rebellious people against God. The scripture says that none of us have want him. We don't seek him. It's it's we we, we come out wicked and we do wicked things against him. And so God has every right to look at us and say, I don't want anything to do with them. They're my worst enemies. We might say, well, I'm not a mass murderer. I haven't gone and done so much crime that I'm in jail. 
But God says that those aren't the, 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 the criteria for you being his worst enemy. The worst thing about you is that you don't want him. And you've acted upon that. And so we can't say I'm not worse as bad as somebody else. The fact is that we were God's enemies. But the reality of the situation is this book that we go to says he showed us overwhelming kindness when we didn't deserve it. It says that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. He took what was priceless and he he gave it to us. And then the scripture says, Jesus says in uh, the scriptures, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down freely. I've been given authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up. And what he says is he's giving us his body. The scripture says that he looks at us and we're in need of a heart transplant. And so God has taken out our heart of stone and the scripture says he has given us his heart, a heart of flesh. It's difficult for us to imagine doing it to our enemy, but the scriptures say that is exactly what God has done for us. And so uh, when we look at the perspective of what scripture gives us of what God has done, it is so amazing. So amazing. And so this morning I want to come and and begin a six week series uh, that we're going to be going through about the life of Christ. And we're going to call it thy kingdom come. You know, that was what Jesus prayed as he did the Lord's prayer. Um, He said, uh, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then he goes on. When it it speaks of thy kingdom come, Jesus told people there that the kingdom of heaven is near. What did that mean? It was that he was standing in the presence. The king had come. And for us, sometimes as we get into summer mode, we get into vacation mode. And that happens not only physically and getting away from work and getting away from people and just hitting the beach or going to the mountains or just... Locking our doors. We hit vacation mode. And sometimes it's easy to do that spiritually and just say, you know, it's the summer. I'm going to relax. But we kind of get dull and lazy and forget about how wonderful God has been. Or some of us, I, I've talked to a couple of people recently say, you know what? My, my, my spiritual life has just been stale. What do I need to do to, to get back to that place of being uh, in love with God and having a fervor for him and doing what he's asked me to? And the greatest way that I know of and the greatest way I believe the scripture tells us is that when we're in that place of, of almost getting to vacation from God, go look at Jesus again. Go look at what God has done, the magnificence of this this great gift that he has given to us. And so we're going to go through a a section of the life of of Christ. And another reason that I want to do that is coming up in the fall as we begin our Bible diggers program and also have our Wednesday night Bible study. This year, we're going to be going through the book of Acts and what happened when Jesus as he came in the flesh and all they've been told about him affected a people and the Holy Spirit was infused into them. And suddenly there was this great act of God that carried out. And we're going to be studying that in the fall. So this is kind of a prepper uh, as we transition into the book of Acts on our Wednesday nights in the fall. So that's what we're doing. We're going to start off where, where a lot of us like to start off when we talk about the life of Jesus. What I want to say is Merry Christmas. It's July and we know about Christmas in July. And so today is the Christmas story. And, and as we talk about the life of Christ, It's easy for us to immediately think, well, the 33 years that Jesus was in the flesh on earth. But as we talk about the life of Christ, we certainly have to acknowledge the fact that Jesus has always lived. Except for when he was on the cross and died. He had always lived, that he was God, that he was before the creation of the world. In fact, the scripture says this. 
that he's the one who created the world. In John chapter 1, verse 3, and also Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, it says that everything that has been made that's been made has been made through Jesus. Things visible, things invisible, thrones, powers, authorities, everything that you can think of in this physical world and in the spiritual world has been created by Jesus. He did that at the beginning. And when you were born, he did that. And as children are born into our church, he does that. Little Nathaniel, that was Jesus And so he continues to do that. And so that was the life of Jesus. He's always lived and he's made that known. But do you know that before he made everything, the scripture says before the foundations of the world that Jesus was already appointed to be the savior, which means this, God already knew when he made us that we needed help. First Peter chapter one says that clearly before the foundations of the world, Jesus was appointed as a savior, but made manifest. And so that's what we're going to talk about today is that there were prophecies, but then he was made manifest. He was born. There was Christmas. And I love that we're placing the conversation now. And here's the reason why for me personally. It's very easy in the month of December, in fact, right after Thanksgiving to hit that Christmas holiday mode, right? You got the songs playing. We've got the hanging of the greens. I've got the gifts I've got to buy. And it's so easy to kind of get in the tornado of Christmas that we zoom through it and miss the Christ. We miss Jesus. So I love that it's pulled out in the middle of summer because what we're going to do with Christmas in July is we're going to look at the Christ. I need that. I need to focus on what that really is for. So uh, one of the things that's wonderful about Jesus's birth is that it was unlike any other birth in the history of mankind because of the way that it was spoken about before he was ever born. From the very beginning, after Adam and Eve had sinned in Genesis chapter three, God was already putting into place the prophecies about Jesus for he told the serpent, yeah, you will strike the offspring's heel and bruise it, but he will crush your head. There was already determination that Jesus would win and take down Satan, that he was going to win. And from there, the prophets continue to speak about the coming birth of Jesus Christ. In Isaiah chapter seven, it tells us that he'd be born of a virgin. In Micah chapter five, it says that he'd be born in Bethlehem. In Isaiah chapter nine, it says that a child would be born. Betty Jean, is everything okay? We're going to pray right now. Can we pray for for this? Father, we pause in the middle of the greatest story of a Savior who saves and helps to, to come and ask for your help. Lord, we pray that your hand would be upon Annette at this time. Lord, that you would bring peace there, that you would bring healing there, Lord, that you would bring comfort. Lord, I pray for Betty Jean and others as they go to surround her and be around, Lord, that you would uh, also give them peace and comfort and that you would be right in their midst. Lord, we pray that as they assess the situation that you give doctors and nurses wisdom. And Lord, we pray that you would continue to do your great work of revealing your care, even in the midst of that situation. And so we give this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look back at Jesus and the prophecies uh, through that, all these prophecies are speaking about Jesus. Uh, As we were talking about in Isaiah chapter 9, it says that there would be a child king born and that he would be a king that the government would be upon his shoulders and that that kingdom would have 
no end. In other places, like in Psalms chapter 2, it says that he would be a king who comes, but as people, nations, kings came up to him, they wouldn't want him, that they would all be against him. But it encourages them, you better kiss the son. You better, you better actually love him. But then it finally goes on and reveals a little bit about how this kingdom's going to be, the way this king is going to be. Yeah, he comes with all of authority, but the king is going to come also with his servant heart. His kingdom come is going to be an upside down kingdom where instead of trying to be so overwhelming and just strong arm people into the kingdom, he's going to come and serve them and love them and donate himself so that they could be saved into the kingdom. And so in Isaiah chapters 52 and 53, the prophecies go forward and say this servant would come and his body would be wrecked and destroyed and be lifted up on a tree. And like a lamb led to the slaughter, he would not open his mouth and make excuses or try to get out of it. But he would go there and he would die and he would suffer in order to make his kingdom righteous, in order to take you who was a sinner and would not be allowed entrance and to save you and make you clean and bring you into the entrance. And all that was foretold ever before he was born. And what I love is, as we come to the Christmas story, we have more foretelling. And we're going to read that this morning out of Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. We're very familiar with a lot of the stories surrounding Christmas. And before this takes place, we're going to read out of uh, chapter 1, verse 26. Before this takes place, there's already prophecy that's, that's occurred in the book of Luke. An angel comes to, to Zechariah and says, hey, your wife is going to have a son, even in her old age. His name is going to be uh, John the Baptist later. And, and John is the predecessor to Jesus who, who uh, paves the way for him, making sure everybody's about ready for the king and to listen to him. So that prophecy's already taken place. And now we get another prophecy concerning a child, this one about Jesus. So let's read together Luke chapter 1, verse 26. It says, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his, of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So this incredible story that we know well, but let's readdress it a little bit. Because for me, one of the things that's fascinating about this is, is something that was not able to be done that day that we do often today. 
when couples today have a, a, a baby that's going to be born and, and the baby's still in the womb, they'll go off to Wake Med or somewhere and they'll have a, a technician run ultrasound over the, the belly and they'll be able to look inside the belly using ultrasound and, and find all kinds of things out about the child, uh, whether it's growing at the right pace, uh, if there's anything wrong, um, uh, wrong there. Um, also, they're able to determine whether it's male or female. You have what's called the ultrasound, right? And, and so we have this take place, and, and it can tell you a lot about that child before the child's ever born. But they didn't have that sort of thing back in Jesus' day. So it's really kind of a spiritual ultrasound that the angel is giving to Mary. Physically, yes, the angel says it's going to be a son. You're going to have a boy. That was something that none of the other mothers in that day would have known except for her relative, Elizabeth. And so she knows that she's going to have the son, but the angel comes and delivers some news. The news about what this child will be. And there are several markers in here that are, that are really great. One was just his name. He's going to be a son, and you're going to give him a son's name, Jesus. The word Jesus really means this, the eternal one who saves. Basically saying the one who's existed forever, God Almighty, he is going to come and save. This boy is going to be marked by the fact that he is the son of God, which the angel said. He is the son of the most high, the angel said. He will be conceived by the Holy Spirit, the angel said. This boy is going to be God. And God is going to come save. And so I want everybody to know it because you're going to mark this boy with a name. His name will be Jesus, the eternal one who saves. Whoever calls upon his name They will know they're calling upon the one who saves. And so he's our savior. What's coming is this savior, the one that the Jews were waiting for. This savior is coming. And that's great news. Have you ever been in a situation where where you're caught and maybe in a point where you're in a point of injury? Any of you ever been alone and you slammed your finger in the door and you can't get it out and you're there by yourself? And you don't know when anybody's coming to help. Isn't it nice when you're in trouble and somebody finally comes and says, hey, I realize that you're in trouble, but help is on the way. Isn't that good? It's terrible when you're in a crisis and you don't know where help is coming from. But even when you're in crisis, it's great when somebody somebody says, you know what? I don't have right now what can help you, but help is on the way. I love that as we sit here, sometimes our, our friends in the congregation that are part of the emergency services get the call and they can respond and they can tell the person who's in trouble, help is on the way. We love that. And I love that. That's what the angel is saying. Help is on the way. The Savior is on the way. God, who's going to save his people, he is on the way. The one that we have been waiting for. He is on the way. And so the Savior is coming. And not only is he a Savior. It says also that he's the son of God. God wanted this to be his own representative. And he needed him to be the son of God because he couldn't take just the son of man and make that person the savior. The reason is because every son that comes from just a normal mom and dad, we are born with sin. We are already in trouble. Jesus being the son of God did not bring his wickedness like we do. Jesus, as the son of God, brought his holiness. So several times in there it said he will be holy. He will be set apart. He will be the one who's not only the savior, but he's capable of saving because he's never done anything wrong. He is pure. He's righteous. He sees things justly. And he's going to be the son of God. God walking on earth. As the angel told uh, 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 Mary, 
that this would be uh, done to her. And it goes on and quotes from Isaiah chapter 7 when it says that he will be born of a virgin. Emmanuel will be with his name, his name because it's God with us. God is coming. He's the son of God. And so it was that very marker as Jesus grew up and he went on into ministry. And as he declared, I am the son of God, the Jews were irate about that because he was claiming to be God. They were so mad about it that they picked up rocks to stone him. They wanted to do him in because they felt like he was blaspheming. He was telling a lie, but it was the truth. The angel said so. And we know that it's the truth because after he died, he resurrected. And so the story of Jesus's life is a representation that God didn't play tricks. He didn't say I was sending the son of God and then substitute something that was incapable, incapable of saving us. He sent his own son. For those of you who have children, we can only imagine what it is to give up our child. Even as I see Stacy cradling her boy back there to be able to, to give up that only son that you have in order to save people who have never loved you. What a sacrifice that the Lord would make that he would give his one and only son to do the purpose of saving those who never desired him. And that's what Jesus was. He was the son of God who would come to die for us. But it's not just a pitiful story. Yes, he's the savior. Yes, he's the son of God. But it also said in there that he is from the lineage of David. He is the king. He is the the, the, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And he has a kingdom that is over every other kingdom. There is no other king like Jesus. And so he says, this one is going to come and he's going to reign. He is going to be the one in charge and he is going to get it done. He has the ability to do that. God wants his kingdom to come. He sends the king. And here came Jesus. Now, the Jews didn't understand that either. When Jesus said, I'm the Messiah who's come, the anointed one, the king who has come, even his own disciples thought, well, what this means is he's going to take Israel and prop it up into the proper nation state with its own land and become a superpower again. And Jesus says later in the book of Acts, you don't know the times or the seasons that the father has ordained by his own authority. And then he goes and tells them what the kingdom is going to look like. This is going to be my new kingdom. It's going to be upside down. You're going to go be witnesses. We're not going to be fighting wars with, with swords and with weapons. We are going to go out with a testimony of what God has done for you by having me sacrificed and risen to life. You're going to go out with the power of that message. That's my kingdom. My kingdom is that my people will serve. My kingdom is that my kingdom people will love. My kingdom is that my kingdom people will adore me and we will go out together and the gospel will do its work. And that was the kingdom. It was upside down. People didn't understand it. There was a story about the man who owned a, rent, a, a boat rental shop on the edge of a lake. And as he looked out, it was time for all the boats to come in. And he saw boat number 99 out there. He got on the megaphone and said, boat number 99, you need to bring the boat in. Boat number 99 didn't make any movement. So he calls out again, boat number 99, the day is done, bring your boat back in. No movement from boat 99. Coworker nudges him and says, we only have 75 boats. The guy pauses for a moment and picks up his megaphone again and says, Boat 66, you need help? It took a moment. took a moment. Upside down. They had capsized. See, we, we don't always see things for what they really are. 
we look at Jesus' kingdom and it's easy to see his kingdom and say he's trying to elevate us or, 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 or the Jews thought it was trying to elevate a nation and, and God's purposes are for him in his own kingdom. And the way he does his own business in his kingdom is to make sure that we know the right way it's headed. And it's not headed so that we would be lifted up on high. It's elevated so that he would be lifted up on high. He is the king. And the best place that we could be is understanding that he came to save us as the son of God, the only one who could save us in order to make us servants of the king. And the way that we serve him is to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength and to love our neighbor as ourself. That we would go back to our schools and love our classmates, even when they've offended us, that we would go to our neighbors and we would love on them, maybe even when they've offended us, that we would go out and love on strangers, even if we look at them and say, you know what, I don't think you've earned it. That was our state. We hadn't earned it. We've been difficult. We were that enemy, remember? And so as we come and we recognize all that Jesus has done, the work that he was doing as he came and he was birthed in this world, it was upside down. He was born as a baby. He was born to a poor family. He was from the hick town of of Bethlehem and Nazareth. And people didn't think that he was the right king. That when we see it for what it really was, he was the son of God who came as the savior and the king. The angel told that to Mary. And then at the proper time, at the appointed time, Jesus was born in that stable. And he grew up from there, and it says 33 years later, as he was that physical, living, breathing man, that Isaiah 52 and 53 came to pass, that that man was taken up on that hill, and he was bound up on that tree by just nails in that place. And in that place that he did not deserve, he looked down upon the people there, and he said this. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He looked upon his enemies. He looked into the future and he saw you and me. And he looked into the past and he saw Adam and Eve and everybody who had ever collected anything that they thought was righteous. But all it was was churchiness. He looked at them and said. You don't know what you're doing. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The father knew what he was doing. Jesus, the king, knew why he was there. And in this upside down kingdom, he said, now I'm giving my life for my worst enemies. At this point, we usually kind of excuse ourselves and say, well, I'm certainly not his worst enemy. But the scripture says it's not up for you and I to look at our neighbor and say, certainly that person is. The scripture says that you're to stand before God and give an account for your life. And when God looks at you, you're not to look to the right or the left. You look him in the eye or you bow on your face and you say, I am a Guilty soul. I do not deserve life. I have been a sinner. But one of the things we're going to see in Jesus' life on earth is as he accounted sinners, he didn't look at them when they were down and they were pitiful or maybe their body was falling apart or they, they had gotten into extreme sin. Maybe they were a tax collector cheating people or maybe they were a prostitute sleeping with people. It doesn't matter who it was. He came near to them and then what did he do? He bestowed love on them and he would touch them and he would talk with them and he would say, come and have life. He would forgive them. And in doing so, what he was saying was, let's trade places. Here, you take my righteousness. 
You take my life. You take the relationship I have with the Father. You take that. And you know what I'll take? I'll take all that sin of sleeping with people. I'll take all the sin of all the cheating you've ever done. I'll take all the sin that you don't even know about. And I'll put it on my own back and I'll go to that cross for you. Because why? I've come near to tell you this. That I love you. I love you. That's the Jesus that we serve. The life of Christ means that he took his life and he gave it. And he died for us. Three days later, he took up his life again by the power of God. And now he has come to a people and he said, not only have I forgiven you, but I am injecting you with that same power of life. I'm putting my Holy Spirit in you and I want you to be my people, my kingdom. And I want you to go out in the same power. And I want you to go love people. That's what we're called to. There's people nowadays that in life, they've got their finger stuck in that car door. The question is, if you're coming their way. Do they know what that you're with Jesus and are they saying help is on the way? Or when they're in that place of trouble, they look at you and say. That person's a coward and a hypocrite. They say they know Jesus. But every time I see them, all I get is a cold shoulder. All I ever get is judgment. What a joy it is that we get to go out and we get to do what Jesus did. The same way that he has come and he showed us love, that we get to overflow his love towards other people and say, how, how can I serve you? How can I love you? That even means how we respond to our worst enemy. That we might, like Jesus, come up to them and say, could I show you kindness? Is there something I can help you with? Here's a gift. I'll give my life for you. That's what we've been called to. But it all starts with Jesus. As we end today, I'm one of those believers that Christmas carols aren't just for December. What happened on that silent night with the crying baby was significant for us all year long. And so we're going to go into a time of worship and prayer. And as we worship together, that's a, a communal expression of just telling God, we've we've seen your grace revealed to us. How you've been so good to us. And we just want to declare your praise. But if during that time you recognize maybe in your heart you, you haven't been jiving with Jesus. You've been in sin. You've been wandering away. You've been dull. Maybe today you just need to spend some time as we sing just, just with Jesus. Asking Him for, for help. Repenting of your sin and turning to Him. Maybe this morning you have weight and burden on you that is so extreme and you've been trying to carry it or at least do enough things to make God see you. Just He sees you. He wants to care and help for you. Come and unload that burden onto him in prayer. You're welcome to come down while we sing and pray at the front or you're welcome to pray where you're at. But here's here's what I'd also like to call you to do today. We've seen that Jesus came and he died for others. And today, as we're singing, I would like you to take a moment. To begin living that love of Jesus towards other people. And here's how I'd like you to do that while we're singing I want you to observe the people who are on your left. 
and the people that are on your right. And some of you might think, well, we don't have enough in our pew. Well, then think of the person behind you or rotate all the way around to the other pew. But as we're singing, think about singing the blessing of Jesus' love over that person and pray for them in, in, in your mind and in your heart. Say, Lord, would you just be in this person's life and pray for the people on both sides of you? And we're going to do that all together as we sing. So let's, let's stand together. Father, we just come now and we give you praise for what you've done, that you, even before the creation of the world, had appointed Jesus as the Savior, knowing that we would need help. And then through the scriptures, you gave the word that help was on the way. And then that help was manifested. It became flesh and it lived among us as Jesus was on earth. And through the scriptures and the gospels, and as we observe his life, we see your heart, your compassion, your graciousness, your mercy, your righteous anger at times in order to help us come back into a place of repentance. And so, Father, we just observe Jesus. And as we look at him, it causes us to fall in love with you. And so we pray that you would take us out of our own way, how we've tried to be king. We pray that you would make us humble servants of the king. Lord, we pray that you would help us to serve others. Those on our right and those on our left and those even that we picture as our worst enemy, Lord, that we would have the love of Jesus in order to love them. Lord, we give this worship to you in Jesus' name. Amen.